Okay. Jonah. Whew. I, uh, I have looked at this today in so many different ways. Wow, how am I just going to start out of a book and go to the last chapter of it? But we've been in Jonah for quite a while. And just looking through previous uh, sections that we've gone through, you know, I had to start with the fact that Jesus, who is, is not only the author of his word, but the fulfillment of it, said that all things must be fulfilled. Said this in Luke 24, which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me, all of it. You know, we're gonna we're gonna have a, a when we get out of this talking about the death and the resurrection of Christ. But wow, that's that's an amazing thing to say. Everything that must be fulfilled, all that was written about him. And we talked about what Jonah was commissioned of God to do one thing, wanted to send him to a very cruel nation. Um, very cruel people, and he rebelled. First mistake. Well, you know, I can't help but thinking, uh, the Jews now are in such total rebellion against God, but you know that during the tribulation period, there's going to be 144,000 of them commissioned that will be an evangelistic agent to the world. He finds himself going on a ship far away, but God knows everything. I think to run from God is probably about the most childish uh, concept in a young Christian's life. And uh, sadly, a lot of us don't learn that, but that's okay, because God will teach us in time. You don't run from the Lord. You know, uh, afraid? You know, you need not be afraid of anything he asks us to do. So we remember how this uh, they, the, the men of, of in that boat, in that ship, realized what was going on, tossed them overboard. And, uh, and by the way, I think anything that the Lord truly touches, he blesses. You know, we find the men in the boat uh, actually sacrificing to the Lord. Um, sometimes God, in his still small voice, speaks volumes uh, when things are prophetically about to happen. I was not around, but I can imagine from accounts I've talked to people that were spiritually uh, in tune to what was going on in uh, May 14th, 1948. And a few accounts that I understand that you could feel the buzz and, and <laughs> so to speak, the rocking arm of this time in history when Israel became a state. Right away, the nations of the world were enraged, and especially those around them, and so forth. When God seems to be doing something prophetically, things happen. Jonah gets swallowed by a large mammal, probably one of the most uh, mocked things in Scripture, at least when I, before I was a Christian, I knew about it. And I'm sure I mocked it. I marked everything else that had to do with God. And yet, Jesus used that as the, as the type of his death, burial, and resurrection. We'll get to that a little bit later. Jonah is spewed out upon the, uh, the land. Last part of chapter 2. 
chapter 3, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. I, I really think he paid attention that time, you know. And I don't think it's because he felt that God was going to pummel him again. But he realized that God is the God of the universe. You do not think that it did something to Peter after hearing Jesus say, go down to the lake and throw in your hook and the first fish that comes up, open its mouth. And that you'll pay for us. You don't think that rocked his world? It sure did. And then, and then when he was in the boat, in Luke chapter 5, and, and he, Jesus said, I want you to cast out. He said, Lord, we've been doing this all night, but at your bidding, I'll do it. He went out. What did he do? Cast out on the right hand of the boat. He had a, a drought of fish that was more than he could handle. What did he do? He fell down. What, what, you know, in the boat, when the, when the tempest came up, and these were avid fishermen that had been out on that lake, probably in all kinds of weather, a fierce tempest came up. Their boat was ready to drown. He was in, you know, in the bottom of the boat. What manner of man is this? How many times is the Lord coming to his people and they marvel? I don't think when Jonah had the word of the Lord the second time, he was worried about being, I think he realized that this God is more than even I understand. I, the more and more I learn about God, the more and more I realize, is the story of Jonah difficult? Absolutely not. Is Balaam and his donkey, hard to believe, absolutely not. But in the church, we still have problems. You know, do we speak in tongues? Don't we speak in tongues? Do we do this? Don't we speak in tongues? You know what? God can do whatever he wants to do. When he wants to do it. But what we need to understand is God is a God of order. He's not a God of confusion. And I think that one thing would be in line with the prophets. We see that every time God's order is followed, especially in the prophets, something happens. Jonah's now on dry land. Jonah has nowhere to go but to Nineveh. He goes to Nineveh, remember? I think personally the greatest revival in the world was here. I think the greatest miracle was here. I've been saying for years the greatest miracle in the New Testament is a changed life. A changed life. Paul said that. That you hear the word of God. It's not the word of man, but the word of God. It affects your works you and believe. We've talked about so many times when Jesus rose Lazarus out of the dead. They came after him as well. Why? Because he bore witness to God, to Jesus, and who he was. So Jonah comes in. He must have preached in such a way that they turned. Even the king made a commission, even to the animals. Um... Put you on sackcloth. You humiliate yourself. You humble yourself before God, lest we be destroyed. And then, and then at the end of, of chapter 3, verse 10, that God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. God is a God of mercy first. If we turn from our evil ways... God will have mercy. I had a man that we were on, on the campus one time, University of Nevada, Reno. I've, got, I've done too much. I've done too much. There's never too much. David could have said that, but he didn't. He was convicted. I think sometimes when we think about we've done too much, it was self, being self-centered. We don't realize the mercy and the greatness of God. Chapter 4 says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. He became angry because this whole evil uh, society, if you will, repented. 
he became angry. Jonah preferred destruction over their conversion. Possibly, maybe he knew this from Hosea, Hosea chapter 9, verse 3, and at the mercy of God. That Assyria, maybe he realized that would eventually take Jonah's people captive. I don't know. But he was angry. I do know that, that the uh, not accepting of the grace of God keeps people more away from the gospel of Christ than anything. It's pride. I don't need anybody to forgive me. I'll make it my own way. Grace, are you serious? Is that all I have to do? Yes, that's all you have to do. That's all I did and changed my life forever. I was convicted that I was a sinner and I turned to Christ. I turned from my sin, I turned to Christ, and He saved me. That was 32 years ago. And you know what? He has done miraculous things in my life. And Jonah was angry because he did miraculous things to a wicked nation. God knows no personage. Think about that. Wow, you know, what's the society? Well, he's getting what he deserves. God doesn't have that, that attitude. He sends the rain on the just and the unjust. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. Verse 1 of chapter 4, he became angry. So he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. And there was the attitude of that, of that absolutely wrong. Here's the outcome, Sam, sorry, from the absolutely wrong attitude. Look at verse 3. Now, therefore, now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Who else did that? Didn't he like to do that too? Remember? He did great exploits. 400 prophets of Baal. God, you know, came down in fire, consumed the sacrifice. He had the prophets slain in front of him. He did a great exploit for God. It took one, Jezebel, a wicked woman, making a, a airless threat, and it sent the man of God running. And he said the same thing. Oh, God, take my life from me. What, what's, what, what use is it? Then we see Elijah going to the woman. Well, we don't need to get in there. We, we, we know these things. There is no occasion for self-pity and self-doubt in a Christian life. Do we really know who Jesus is? Do we know our Master? Do you know our God? Because if we don't know Him, like Jonah displayed here, Oh, he says he did. Lord, I know you are God of mercy. If he really did, he wouldn't be angry. He would fall down and say, Lord, you're a compassionate God. And we're going to see that at the end of verse 4 when he says, you know, shouldn't I have had compassion on these people that don't know the right hand from the left? Look at you. How can I be angry at God for being merciful to somebody or being merciful to somebody might even hurt me when I realized that it was absolute mercy that saved me? Think about that. That is the attitude that this prophet had right there. That is wrong. Do we really know God? That's our aim, is to know Him. I know that you are a gracious and merciful God. 
You know, there's the one thing about knowing about God. We can know all kinds of things about Him. All kinds of doctrines, all kinds of things, you know. We had a, a story that we illustrated one time in one of our, in our works, you know. It's Mount Everest, man. You can know all kinds of facts about Mount Everest. The height and, and all, the, you know, the valleys and everything and the winds and all that. But it's a different thing to experience it. It's a different thing to go on Mount Everest and experience the heights and, and the valleys and the winds and, the, and, you know, the coverts and the depths and the ice and so forth. You know, it's great to know about it. But when you put the two together, you have the complete package. And that's what God says, right? Go back to Jeremiah chapter 9. Remember, from this, it pleases me, this. Not that you boast in your wisdom and your knowledge or everything else, but that you know me, that you understand me. So, you know, we really need to understand that knowing God is different than knowing about God. And I'm a stubborn man. It took me many years to learn that. I mean, really learn it, and I'm still learning it. But I'll tell you one thing. Because of the gift of the Holy Spirit that's been given to me, I love Jesus now more than I ever have. That's God. Take my life from me. It's better that I die than live. Verse 4, let's read down then so we won't get angry. And then the Lord said, is it right for you to be angry? So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city. There he made himself a shelter and sat under it in the shade until he might see what would become of the city. It's a peculiar verse. We'll get back into that. And the Lord God prepared a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. So Jonah was very grateful for the plan. We see where this is going. But as morning dawned the next day, God prepared a worm, and it was so damaged the plant that it withered. And it happened, verse 8, when the sun rose that God prepared a vehement east wind. And the sun beat on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. Then he wished death for himself. Here we go again. And said, It is better for me to live than to, or to die than to live. Verse 9, that God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And he said, It is right for me to be angry even to death. Now Paul says an amazing thing at the end of his epistle, Romans says, Who are you to answer again against God? Wow. Verse 10, but the Lord said, you have had pity on the plant for which you have not labored, nor made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, which are more than 120,000 persons, who cannot discern between the right hand and the left, and much livestock? You know, getting back into verse 2, he prayed to the Lord, and he said, Look, this is what I told you when I was in the country. This is why I split. The book of Jonah stresses, again, stresses the fact that God's love transcends all national distinctions and embraces the most unloving. And I, for one, I am very glad for that because, you know, I look back and I can be honest with you, I was most unloving. 
because I thought I had it all. You know, pride. You know, one thing we talked about uh, Monday and the last, you know, the other night when I was having dinner with my friends. One thing man has never, ever learned, and that is he cannot do without pride. Man has never mastered the pride issue. He's prideful from day one. He was prideful when he, when they forbid that forbidden fruit. They wanted to be wise. They wanted to transcend things. They, you know, I think personally that uh, Adam didn't want to lose his wife, but that's nonetheless. Then we go through, you know, the Tower of Babel. We go through the flood that was destroyed. We go, we're constantly dealing with man's pride. Man is going to bring him low. And do you know that one of the reasons inside God's, we talked about this before, inside God's uh, mutable understanding and the way he looks at judgment is pride. We wrestle with pride. I don't think there's a man or woman alive that at one time or another doesn't wrestle with pride. But of the day of the Lord, which is what is culminating here in these in these prophets, God says this, For the day of the Lord of hosts shall come upon everything what? That is proud and lofty, upon everything lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Now the Assyrians were cruel. I don't have time to get into some of the, uh, of the cruelty. I, I mentioned one, that they would flay their victims alive, for example, and so forth. They were actually cruel. But they humbled themselves, they repented, and God saved them. God is merciful. And Jonah hated that. He went out of the city. He made a shade for himself, in verse 5, to get out of the sun, until he might see what would become of the city. What did David do? when he committed adultery with Bathsheba, and Uriah killed. And what did he say concerning his son? Who, the little baby that was born by Bathsheba, who knows whether God will relent or not? The prophet told him, your son will die. When are we going to stop playing word games with God and take him at his word? These people repented, and it must have been a revival that, that really shook him to the core. Think about this. Not one or two of the Assyrians. A whole city repented. The king repented. Read Judges chapter 4 to see how most kings act. They repented. He was displeased. He was angry. So he built himself a shelter just to sit back and see what really is going to happen. Because these are godless people, right? And guess what? These were Gentiles. These were godless Gentiles. How could God do such a thing? After all, the Jews are the only ones that have a pact with God, right? As Paul says, he the God of the Jews only or not or the God of the Gentiles as well. So he builds this thing and he sees what's going to happen. Look at verse 6. And the Lord God in mercy prepared a plant. And he made it come up over Jonah. That I might shape give him shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. So Jonah was grateful. Angry with God what he did, but grateful for the little plant that he received. 
You know, God in his wisdom had prepared four wonderful provisions in this account. A great fish, a plant, a worm, and a strong east wind. God prepared these things. Verse 7, as the morning dawn the next day, God prepared a worm. You know, there's a spiritual lesson here. Sometimes God prepares a worm to come and eat away our false pride, uh, our false security, our false understanding about God. You see, I think that's one of the reasons why the worm came, is he's going to destroy every false standing that Jonah might have about God. And so do we. Sometimes we, we grow, and, and we might do it innocently, we might do it in our fervency and our zeal, but God has instituted his word that when we take him at his word and we learn about him, these things that are in our life, he's complaining, this, this drudgery, God will work on. He prepared a worm. And so it damaged the plant and it withered. Look at verse 8. It happened when the sun arose that God prepared a vehement east wind and the sun beat on Jonah's head so that, so that he grew faint that he wished death for himself. You know, life isn't, isn't in the provisions we have. Life is through the Lord Jesus Christ. God is the giver of his life. I don't know why, but I have 1 Kings 19. Let me go, let me go check that out real quick. But uh, let me ask you a question. Have you ever stopped in, in to consider what you really know about God? What his, what his, how does he treat you during that? We've talked about this through the years. Who is he? You know, he's a God of compassion, he's a God of mercy. But yet, have you ever applied that mercy to yourself? Mercy provided the open gate that grace might flood in through the Lord Jesus Christ to save you. It was mercy that God had on you. It was mercy that God had on your lost, sinful condition. It was mercy that opened the gate that, as the NASB says, that God would lavish his grace upon you. It was mercy. Now, 1 Kings chapter 4, or chapter 19. Again, just talking about Elijah. I won't go much more than that, but he was the same one who, he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness of King and sat under a broom tree, and he said, Enough, now Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. This was after he fled from Jezebel and her aimless threats. But God had mercy upon him. And as he lay and he slipped under a broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said, Arise and eat. Then he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. So he ate and he drank. God in his mercy, always showing himself merciful, always showing himself caring and compassionate. When Jesus rose from the dead, he spent 40 days on this earth. And he was by the Sea of Tiberias watching them because John said, or Peter actually said, I'm going to go fishing. 
So him and John and probably a few others were out fishing. What did they see? John said, hey, that's the Lord over there. And Peter, in his absolute amazement, jumped out of the boat and swam. Guess what happened? The same God that took care of Elijah and Jonah had a bed of coals and fish laying on the shore. This, I don't understand that compassion. I don't understand that mercy. But we are recipients of it day by day by day by day. God doesn't say, okay, I've shed my mercy upon you, and now it's up to you. He sheds it every day, every morning they are new. Great is thy faithfulness. I, I get emotional because I know how I am. Wow. Jonah must have really been in a whirlwind right now. So again, back in Jonah, when, when the sun come up, and he beat on Jonah's head. He grew faint. He wished death for himself. It's not going very good for me. God said to Jonah, verse 9, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Wow. And he said, It is right for me to be angry even to death. You know, God cares for the people he created. <clears throat> let's, let's read a few verses down. But the Lord said, You have pity on the plant for which you have not labored, nor made it grow, which came up at night, perished at night. Should I not have pity on Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons? Yeah, wicked, I know that. God knows everything. But these people are so dead in sin, they cannot even discern their right hand and their left. You know, the Bible says that those outside of Christ are held by the devil to do his will all their life. If they don't turn from Christ, they're headed for a crisis eternity. And guess who's going to be rejoicing until they get there? This, your adversary. These people are dead in sin. They don't even know the right hand from the left, and you're mad. You rejoice over plant coming up, but you're mad because I have mercy and I'm compassionate. You know, people say, well, that doesn't, you know, what does that have to do with me today? I pray that God would reveal our true hearts to us. And if there is ever a hint of uh, wanting to argue or wanting to state your case against a merciful and kind and compassionate God. You know, Joppa, with his prophets from, is the same place Peter had his vision. Remember that? Acts chapter 10. House of, of Lord, actually... He was in Simon the Tanner's house. And God institutes his word in such a way that as he sent Jonah these wicked people and saw how God is not a respecter of persons but loves those that he creates. Simon, Peter, was in Simon the Tanner's house in Joppa and he saw a trance. And what was in that trance? That she came down. No, no. They said, come kill and eat. No way, Lord. <laughs> no way. I'm not going to eat anything unclean. The thing here was that he took that message of mercy and love and kindness and compassion, and he took it back to the Gentiles, Cornelius. Thus, God gave him the keys to open the door to the Gentiles. That is the significance of that account.
Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> wow. Only somebody has truly been born again that knows Christ can realize that God is beyond our comprehension. And yet he chooses to reveal himself to those that love him. So if you want to read that account in Acts chapter 10, very telling. I studied both those with with this last, uh, well, actually with the whole book of Jonah, and especially this last chapter, and and, uh, God is not a respecter of persons. I'll simply say this before I get into my closing uh, statement about this book of Jonah. Paul writes in Romans 15, 4, he says, For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. You know, when we, when we study the mercy of God and the great passages, one that comes to mind, for example, is Romans chapter 5, where, say, where God demonstrates His love. And that while we were still sinners, or yet sinners, Christ died for us. Think about God having mercy on this this nation, on this city that was cruel. Cruel. This is nothing that Charles Manson could have even thought about. And yet we see him as a demon, as, as something that's... I remember watching with my wife several years ago, quite a few years ago, the last recorded... Uh, interview. Something wrong. <laughs> that guy is wicked. Does God love him? I want to ask you, does God love him? Yes! How could that be? Again, God transcends everything that, that we understand about him. He's merciful. And it will grieve God if Charles Manson departs this life separated from him because of sin and refuses Christ. I like it the way Donald Gray Barnhouse says it, that the angels in heaven will weep as people stumble over the cross of Christ into a crisis eternity. That's, a, that's the love of God. You know, Jonah is mocked. The book of Jonah is mocked. Ah, that can't happen. Are you kidding me? Swallowed by a fish? Three days and three nights? In a belly of a fish? That's, that is scientifically impossible. Remember, science never proves the Bible. The Bible proves science. It's impossible. This can't happen. It's, it's one of the mo- most mocked things about the Bible. You know? Uh, and yet, look at the world today. They mock the death resurrection of Jesus Christ. They mock him. You know, when the skeptics mock Jonah, they're really mocking the, the God of the universe that, that for a miracle, it's only expected. And it's only shines forth that God would produce a miracle and produce a sign of his absolute brilliance in a, in a sin-soaked world. That would be like taking an absolute, uh, like taking Mike's t-shirt, put it against an absolutely black piece of velvet. It shines forth. What do you expect God to do in in the midst of a sin-soaked world that He so cares about? He is going to He's going to do whatever He can miraculously. How could God become a man? You know, let alone Jonah, a fish swallowing a man is one thing. 
How could God himself, who is spirit, become a man? God became a man. You know, one time when, when I, I believe it was Franklin, um, one of Billy Graham's sons, this was years and years ago, very small, they were walking along a trail, and they, and they stepped upon an anthill, and the ants were all scurrying about. And he goes, look, Dad, he goes, look what happened. And, and you know, and Billy back then said, well, wouldn't it be great if, if, if we could uh, become an ant and tell them it's okay? And that's exactly what God did when he became a man. He entered into this world, miraculous, uh, miraculous. It's so miraculous, then in, in the Revelation it says that of his birth, that the great dragon was ready to swallow up the woman and her child. There's more spiritual principle here. Jonah is nothing in the well. God in human flesh came into the world. How could a man go to a cross and die for your and I's sins? Only God, who is outside of time, apart from his creation, not in his creation. There's a fallacy there. The people that say God, a pantheistic God, is in creation, are the people that say going to the cross is meaningless. Because we're all divine and we need no forgiveness. But God's outside of time. God's apart from his creation, but yet loves it. And God pierced time and became a man lived that perfect life, which is a miracle itself. I have never come close to seeing a sinless life. And yet he goes to the cross, and God, who is outside time and sees every sin that all of us have ever committed, and heaps them upon Christ, and crushes and punishes Him for you, and yet three days later He raises again, bottling physically in the body He was crucified in. How do I know God loves me? How do I know He's the miraculous has happened? And how do I know I'm forgiven? Because Christ came out of that grave in the body that they nailed him to the tree on. And he said, oh joy. And he ascended into heaven and he's there for you and I. And that's why he equates that tale, that true occurrence of Jonah and the whale. And he looked at the people around him and he said, but there's a greater than Jonah here. Wow. Wow. People that mock Jonah are really mocking the Lord Jesus Christ. I tonight wanted to just end that. As we journey through uh, the Minor Prophets here, the next prophet we come to is Micah. And, and you know what? It's what what's really kind of neat is if you've gotten a, a copy of Israel, my glory, it's it's written uh, going through Micah, so it'll be really instructive to hit it from all angles. You know, the theme of Micah is the ultimate judgment, but the future restoration of Judah and Israel. You know, we read it in Jeremiah 30, and, that, and the reason why I read that first, God says that I'm going to punish, I'm going to destroy those nations that are against you. But I'm, I'm not going to destroy you, but I'm not going to leave you unpunished. That's what a caring God does. You know, is he, is he, he punishes for sin, he corrects, he reproves, and sometimes that's done. Uh, 
I think that sometimes as a father, sometimes that, that I, um, I had a pretty close relationship with my kids, but I think that one thing that most occurs to me is I, did, I don't think I was sometimes disciplining enough. You know, God knows when to discipline, and he does it very, very harshly sometimes, and he's going to do it so harshly that only a third of his people will come out. Uh, we'll read that in Zechariah under his rod of judgment and cleansing. So that's the theme of this book, is the judgment and the future restoration of Israel. Uh, even under King Hezekiah, there was, there was uh, a few kings, but even under uh, King Hezekiah, which, which reigned, uh, probably was one of the last kings that was reigning under Mike's ministry. Nonetheless, he was a very good king, very good Israeli king. But nonetheless, in his uh, kingship, if you will, Israel's priests and prophets were absolutely corrupt. Absolutely corrupt. Which gives occasion for a lot of this that we're going to be reading about. I just want to give you a little history uh, of this book. The Assyrian Invasion. Was graphically prophesied. Graphically. And we'll see that, especially in this first chapter. With further prophecy of Armageddon, the outer reaches of, of this great prophecy, and the deliverance of Israel. You know, in the prophets, if, 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 I hope that you've seen right now a pattern where God is interested in in his people to the point where he will discipline them, but always at the peril of warning, warning, warning. The nations can go on to destruction, and God will destroy them, and God will, will use them as instruments of punishing his people, but Israel is distinctly unique in the fact that God spares no favoritism as far as punishment, but God promises deliverance. And what do we see attacked today? Israel, by Christians. People that are supposedly should support them are attacking them. Predominant leaders that we all know that have been around for years. Hank Hennegraff, Hendrik Hennegraff, R.C. Sprawl. What are these people doing? James Kennedy is dead now. He knows better. These are, these are people who have been around a long time, and they are at the head of this forefront. There's many more. He's unique. And the prophecy of this wonderful nation that's the only ethnic group of people in the world that have been prophesied of being chastised and judged, dispersed about the, of the whole world, brought back are receiving judgment and yet kept the same ethical race that has never happened in the history of the world. <clears throat> and God's wonderful thing, again, is not only the deliverance from the Assyrians, the, the, the chastisement, the judgment he has, and he shows by the Assyrian invasion. And by the way, what do we just we'll read about in Jonah? Nineveh were Assyrians. So just keep that in mind. 
These invasions were graphic. You know, and I, I just want to talk about one thing as well. If you want to read about it, and I would, would imagine it would probably be a good prelude to this study, which we won't get into much of tonight because it's already getting late. In 2 Kings chapter 18 and chapter 19 is the graphic illustration of how God can stop an invasion of an army at will. When we were in the book of Isaiah, we talked about the invasion of the Assyrian army under the leadership of one called Sennacherib, a very violent uh, military exploit for the Assyrians. In 2 Kings chapter again, 18 and 19, you will see how this invasion was coming in, and he plowed up. We're going to go through some, some names of some cities uh, from verses 8 through 16 that they all have a certain quality about them. Their name means something. But he went in and mowed these down in a path of destruction. And God said, I will not let Sennacherib touch Jerusalem. What happened? Read about it. Second Kings 18 and 19. Especially 19. God halted Sennacherib right outside of Jerusalem. And guess what happened? It didn't fare well for him. He went home and got assassinated by his own sons. You don't mess with God. Prophecy will be fulfilled. People through history have died trying to abort prophecy. It can't happen. This we see specifically in Micah. Let's get into just the first few verses. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moraseth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Ah, we understand the scope of his prophecy right here. Samaria was the capital of, of the ten northern tribes. Jerusalem was the capital of the two southern tribes. We see this, and we will also see this in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, in that great prophecy of exactly where the Messiah is going to come from, exactly why he's going to come. He's going to come as ruler over his people Israel. But wait a minute. If there's no Israel, what's he going to be a ruler over? Because it says in the early part of Matthew and so forth, and you see all through the Revelation, that the reason for his coming back is to judge the 12 tribes of Israel. In fact, he's going to have his apostles judging the 12 tribes of Israel. You cannot get around it. You know the prophecy of Israel and where the Bible sits. I go back to our first uh, uh, quote from, from Mr. Hunt. You don't understand the place of Israel, not only history and prophecy, and in the future, uh, you don't understand most of what's in the Bible. And that is one of the reasons why there is so much anti-Semitic rhetoric in the world. There always has been, there always will be. That's something that's not going to go away. It's going to heat up. Then you have people that say, well, Israel doesn't have the right to be over there. They're legally over there. Then you have people in the church saying, wait a minute, they shouldn't all be illegally over there. They're of no account at all. So you get all these things and you start seeing where uh, Israel is. What's behind it all? Is man behind it all? No, Satan is behind it all. And when we get in the book of Revelation and we get to the point where we see the ferociousness of it, 
seen in the fact of this ferocious dragon waiting for that child to be born so he can devour it. This is the reason why there's so much hatred and anti-Semitic rhetoric in the world today. So we see that his, his ultimate writing goes to Israel. Jacob. We can trace that back to the time of Jacob's trouble. Who is Jacob? Jacob wrestled with the angel, remember, wrestled with God himself, said, I'm not going to let go until you give me a blessing. Your name is no longer Jacob's Israel. The prophetic strain is so constant through here that uh, there's a lot of delusion going on today about what Israel's thing is. But look at this. He says, he's, look at verse 2. Here, all you peoples, listen, O earth, and all that is in it, let the Lord be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. Listen, O earth, the God of all creation is speaking. This is just not the God of the Jews. This is the God of the whole creation with his ap the apple of his eye he's dealing with, and yet he's also dealing with the nations. Listen to what Habakkuk, in Habakkuk 2.20 says, But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. Let the whole earth be silent before him. He is in his holy temple. I'll end in verse 3. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place. He will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. You know, the term high places is first mentioned in Deuteronomy 32 and elsewhere. You know, it's when the Lord comes into judgment, either with his people or with the nations, he's pictured as one coming out of his place. He's speaking out of his holy habitation. You know, we, we need to stand up and listen. Because I think in all prophetic strain, we could come down to this, and I'll, I'll close with this uh, dealing with Peter. Peter says, in the last days, mockers will come. And they're going to say, what is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers have fallen asleep, all has remained the same. Peter's response was, but they don't realize this. That at one time, God destroyed this earth by water. And I don't want you to get tired of hearing this part because it is so important. He says, by this same word. God destroyed the earth once. But he says, by this same word, he is going to reserve this place for fire, for judgment. You know, it's, it's an understanding of what God's going to do. But you know what? We are going to be with him. You know, I, I don't think that the prophets are meant to scare anybody 
Um, you know, I, I heard a thing the other day, and I've read several years now of different accounts. Why don't people, why don't pastors teach the prophets? Why don't they teach Revelation? Why don't they teach what's going to happen? Because they don't want to scare the people. Wait a minute, what? We are in Jesus Christ. We are safe. We are in Him. And I want to close tonight by reading just something. I know I, I, I just get so excited. I want us to be so um, understanding of the fact that Christ has come in fulfillment of prophets. He has died for our sins. He has rose again. He is at heaven, seated at the right hand of God. He's coming back for us at any moment. Don't get that confused with the second coming to earth. There's two different things. He's coming for us in the air. We will be coming with him to the earth. That's a way of just to tell him apart. We'd be here all night if we went through the scriptures. Do you know how many times Jesus' second coming is alluded to in the epistles? At Christ appearing, at Christ appearing, at the appearing of Christ Jesus, at Jesus appearing. I mean, so many times. We are safe in Christ Jesus. There is two things that's either going to happen to you. Either you will die physically and go immediately to be with him, hallelujah, or all of a sudden we will be speaking and fellowship and he will come back. And in the twinkling of an eye, Paul says, we will be changed. We will be with him. This is our plight. All because Christ hung on a cross for you and I and suffered separation for a time from his father so that you and I wouldn't have to suffer that separation eternally. We are safe. God shut us in the ark of Christ himself. So we study all this wonderful prophecy and all the, the ideas coming together of Daniel's 70th week and so forth, the tribulation, everything leading up to what's happening. But listen to this, and I'll read it, and I will read it many, many, many times until I'm not behind this wood anymore. This is the most fascinating uh, piece of literature regarding your and mine's future I could ever even imagine. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, and now I saw heaven opened. We're with him, okay? We are with him. And behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. Boy, it's not the white horse of the first seal, is it? Remember how Jesus is handed the scroll and he opens that first seal? No, that's the Antichrist. He came out to conquer. But this one is Christ. We know because he's called faithful and true. We'll get into that. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire. On his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with the robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. There is no question on who this is. And he's coming back as a judge. Verse 13 says, And he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood again, and his name is called the Word of God. Look at verse 14 if you're there. And the armies of heaven, or in heaven, Clothed in fine linen, white and clean. My friends, who is that? That's the saints. That's us. How do we know that? Look up elsewhere in the Word of God that the saints are clothed in white. We are clothed in the, not only the righteousness of Jesus Christ, but clean and white linen. The armies in heaven 
clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations. This is this is coming in Armageddon. And with and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. We know that by chapter uh, the second psalm. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of God Almighty. Or if you have the New King James, it says the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. On his robe and on his thigh is written King of kings and Lord of lords. Look at verse 17. I'll end with that. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. Wow. Afraid? Scared? No. We understand our role. And it's because of that role that we can look at the way God deals with his people. And we are confident. I'm confident that as the days grow more and more to the end, there's going to be more persecution of this mindset. There's going to be more persecution. There's, going to, there's people now saying there's not going to be judgment. There's people now that, you know, they, they have everything that God's Word prophetically states about not only our future with Him, but His future with His nation of Israel and setting up the kingdom that was promised through many scriptures. That is being ridiculed today. We have a wonderful future. Micah, by the way, was prophesied about 750 B.C., somewhere around there. So you're talking about if that 750 was true, we're talking about 746, something like that, years before Christ. That is nothing in the timing of God. Nothing. I can't wait till we, we get into the belly of this of this prophet. Learn more about him. I pray that we would just come to know God and to know Him and who He is, what He does. And for you that have taken notes. pray that we all understand, and I promise I will close with this. I shouldn't say that. My wife tells me every time, don't say that until you actually do it. And we love it. Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. This is a good springboard text to flower out the rest of the Word of God to see what God really delights in. What is? I want God to be delighted in how I view Him. I want, I want to know God. Paul says it this way, I want to know Him in the power of His resurrection. But listen to what, what Jeremiah says. Chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord. This is God speaking. Let not the wise man glory in His wisdom. 
That shoots down just, you know, there's so many people that know doctrine, and, and we should know doctrine, but there's so many people that boast on what they know. Let me sit down and teach you the scripture, you know, pat you on the head, so, you know, so to speak. God says, don't glory in that. That is, that is wonderful that you know the attributes and the doctrine of Christ, but don't glory in that. That is a gift. Paul says, why do you glory in what, in Stuff that, you know, as if you haven't received it. When you have, you have received it. We know the correct doctrine of Christ because the Holy Spirit gave us the wisdom. So we can't glory in that. So don't glory in that. Let the mighty man glory in his might. Listen, when I was 20 years old, I was a pretty strong young man. I'm not that way anymore, and I'm, I'm going downhill. Don't boast in your might. Are you a rich man? Wow, we don't have time to talk about riches. That is foolish to glory in your riches. Here today, gone tomorrow, we talked about the two men that gloried in their riches. One couldn't hang around to, to really enjoy, the other one will never get there. But look at verse 24. But let him who glories glory in this. Now that God tells you what you can glory in. God tells you what you can really invest your life in. You know, Paul, at the end of his life, when we told Timothy, I've, I've shown you my manner of life, my doctrine, my reasoning, my purpose in life. Well, this is our purpose. If you really want to know God, he says, but let him glorious glory in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. And then he ends by saying, in these things I delight, says the Lord. He does not delight in the pride of, of knowledge. Knowledge is good, but it puffs up. But love edifies. And to know the God of love is to know life. I want to know God. And, and, I, and I want to live my life delighting in Him. Understanding Him. You know, God, people say, well, God's a noble. Well, He's a two-edged sword. Yes, God is so beyond our capability. But God in His mercy has laid down in His Word what he likes, what who he is, how he deals with us, what he rejoices in, what he doesn't rejoice in, what he likes. Wait a minute. That takes freedom of will. That takes choice. That takes a will of our own, and that takes uh, not only discipline, but everything else. But God delights in that. I don't want to have a God that says, you know what, Jeff? You better be lucky, man. You better feel good because I chose you from the foundation of the world and wow, you made it in, guy. And yet my, my wonderful friend Greg over here wasn't as fortunate because God didn't seem to, to really you know, choose him. Because after all, we don't have free will. That is rubbish. And God wants us to know him. And he deals with his people, Israel, in such a way that they will have, according to C.I. Schofield, and I, I love this saying, their greatest exaltation yet. Father, I thank you for tonight. Lord, your word is just, it's fascinating. It's not only alive and active and sharpening to its sword, it's the rejoicing and joy of my heart. I pray that we would all have that 
Uh, even as Jeremiah said, I found your word and I ate it. Oh, boy, was it rejoicing in my heart. It just never can be fathomed enough. It never can be studied enough. It never can be chewed on enough, enjoyed enough. It's eternal. <clears throat> Lord, I pray that we would understand that you are outside of time, and yet you chose because you love us to reveal yourself to us. Thank you for tonight. Go with us as we go, and I pray that, again, we would just be blessed with the warm fellowship of Jesus Christ. In his name I ask. Amen. Amen.